You are listening to the Grace Covenant Cornelius Podcast. A master craftsman can see something we can't see. We see an old board, faded and scarred. He sees a treasure. He chooses to wood with care. And with an image in his mind of the final masterpiece, he begins to transform the raw materials. and dimensions the weathered wood. It makes it useful again. The wood yields to his touch. His skill makes the process seem effortless. He's taking what is old and creating something different, something new. in the process of the lost being restored and being transformed to live as kingdom citizens, living out God's agenda here um, in this world, here in the Lake Norman community, just as the craftsman, as you saw on the screen, refines and restores, so the Holy Spirit works in our lives, transforming our lives, enabling, empowering us to live as kingdom citizens. As we have established in this series thus far, God's kingdom is not just future, God's kingdom is now. Right? And God's kingdom is where? It's present in you. But we are, we are citizens of God's kingdom, living as his representatives here in the Lake Norman community. And so we're citizens king, citizen kingdoms, living out that of God's rule and God's leadership here in the community. You know, the kingdom is not a, a place but a power. It's not a static thing, but it's a dynamic and living reign. It, it's not an issue of land, but it's an issue of lordship. The Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. Now, as we think of the kingdom, it operates on different principles and different values than the kingdom of this world. Let me say it another way. What God values is different from what our world values. Are you with me? What God values, what he says is significant, is, would be different. It's in conflict with our, with our culture. So the ways of God's kingdom is in conflict with this culture in which we reside. And, and, and it was in Jesus' day. I mean, we see this playing out throughout the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As Jesus was consistently, and read the Gospels, he was consistently in conflict with the religious leaders of the day. Why? They were operating opposite of God's kingdom value. The religious leaders of the day was about power, about control, about authority, about using their position to gain from others. It was not about serving others. It was about what they could get from others. Therefore, as Jesus came proclaiming God's kingdom, there was this conflict. One, because the, the religion of the day that was supposed to be representing God had actually become twisted. It had got off course. And it's in conflict to God's kingdom. Matter of fact, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 27. 
Jesus said these words to the religious leaders. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. And the same way on the outside you appear as, as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Then in Matthew 15, 8, Jesus said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, they're saying the right thing. But there's a disconnect. What was Jesus? What was Jesus confronting? He was confronting their values. Obviously, there's a disconnect here. What the religious leaders valued was not what Jesus valued. How the religious leaders led was not how Jesus led. How the religious leaders treated people was not how Jesus treated people. The religious leaders again, but they had wrong values. What they thought was important was the opposite of the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. There was a problem, and Jesus was confronting the problem with his announcement of the kingdom and the ways of the kingdom, the values of the kingdom. And I would say, this is my opinion, but I would say we have a problem today, just as there was a problem in Jesus' day. And and I want to put the problem to you in a form of a question. Now think about this. How can we have all of these churches on all of these street corners, filled with all of these members, led by all of these pastors, elders, and deacons, supported by all of our programs, and still yet have all of this mess in America today. I think that tells us we have a problem. I think it tells us that the church has become marginalized by by our culture. Could the problem be that we're not living out God's kingdom agenda marked by this, his values, his principles, and his power? Could it be that we have lost something in our religious gatherings? Now, I'm not calling you a Pharisee this morning. I'm not calling myself a Pharisee. But could there be some Pharisee in you? Could there be some of that tendency, those tendencies that have found its way into the church and that the church has lost its effectiveness because we're not living out kingdom values and kingdom principles? So over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is we're in this series, this larger series of the kingdom. We're going to take three weeks and talk about what are the values, the values of the kingdom. What is it that God values? What is it that God rewards? What is it that God calls us to? I mean, think about, think about the time that Jesus came. Think about the setting in which Jesus came. There was some tensions playing out. There, there was some conflict The kingdom that Jesus came to establish was in direct conflict with the kingdom of the world. I mean, at this particular time, when Jesus came, when Jesus announced the kingdom of God is here, repent. Israel was under the rule of Rome. The Roman kingdom was focused on this domination and subjugation. Rome used several means, including military might and economic deprivation to control and dominate. It was either Rome's way or death. Really simple. Rome's way or death. That was the Roman power. That was the Roman kingdom. And then you had the religious kingdom of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which was focused on, on power and control. The, the religious leaders were not, they were not serving for the good of others. They were serving for what they could get. It was, it was about them. And then you had Satan's kingdom, which was focused on deception and death. Matter of fact, as Jesus spoke of Satan's kingdom in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have that life abundantly. So you have you have these kingdoms that were playing out. You have the Roman kingdom. You have the religious kingdom. You have Satan's kingdom. And in the midst of that, Jesus comes and he announces God's kingdom. And get this, it was so radically different. It was about love and humility. 
I mean, read the Gospels. Jesus, Jesus began to make some really radical statements. Like, he said this. He says, if you want to be first, you must be last. Like, how does that work? It doesn't make sense. Or, or he, 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 said, he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Like, what's that all about? What about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? Love my enemies? Pray for those who persecute me? Jesus said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? Like these, are, these were some of the radical teachings that, that conflicted with the culture of the day. It conflicted with the ways of the world in Jesus' time. And I would say it still conflicts with the culture today. I think what we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 5 being the Beatitudes is this. Jesus is calling us to live counterculture. Not to embrace the ways of the world, but to embrace that of the ways, the ways of God's kingdom. When Jesus began his public ministry, he handpicked 12 disciples and he called them together. And one of the first teachings that we have of Jesus is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew 5, 6 and 7. Jesus gathers his handpicked disciples and he begins to tell them what the kingdom is like. He begins to share with them the values, the values of God's kingdom. In the first part of this Sermon on the Mount, we have these eight statements called the Beatitudes. I think they define how we are to be as Christ followers. How we're to be. Not so much about what we're to do. How many of you know if you get the being right, it shapes the doing? Right. Oftentimes we get caught up in the doing and, and, and we don't pay a lot of attention to the being. But if we get the being right, if we get the heart right, then the attitudes and the actions that flow out of the heart are right. They're good. The be the be attitudes. I think the be attitudes give us a succinct statement of the ethos of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus announced. And it, and it summarizes the principles of kingdom life. It's here that Jesus reveals the values of the kingdom, and and he reveals what God values and what God blesses. So if you want to know what God blesses, Jesus kind of unveils it here in Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to read it in in just a moment, but first let let me talk with you about this whole concept of the Beatitudes. Then we're going to dive a little deeper into the first two. But here's the overview of Beatitudes. Three statements there in your notes this morning. The first is this. Each Beatitude begins with a blessing and ends with a reason for the blessing. So there's this blessing pronounced and then talks about the reason for that. So each one begins, if you look to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read that in just a moment. But each of the Beatitudes begins with the word blessed. Now, as we think of the word blessed today, we think of what? Life going well. Needs being met, like all is good. Oftentimes when someone, um, someone comes by me, they say, hey, hey, how are you doing today, Pharaoh? And my response oftentimes is blessed. I'm blessed, and I am. What I'm saying is, you know, life is going good. I am, I am blessed in my life. But interesting, the Greek word here being going back to the original text for, for the word blessed carries a much deeper meaning than just things going well in life. Needs being met in life. The word blessed refers to the well-being, 
spiritually, emotionally, and physically of those who, because of their relationship with Christ, receive God's kingdom, which includes his love, his care, his salvation, and his daily presence. It's joy and fulfillment that's not based on right circumstances, but right relationship with God and his kingdom. It's this that Jesus says we discover and experience as we live out the values of the kingdom. What we are, we're blessed. We're blessed in our lives. But the way of of those who are blessed is often contrary to our culture. As we work our way through these Beatitudes over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to discover is, is that the Beatitudes illustrate how the ways of the world are completely at odds with God's way. In other words, what God values and what God rewards is different than what our culture values. I mean, think about this. For example, in the marketplace today, the man or woman who can uh, make the tough decision, who can drive the company, who can close the deal, who can uh, make a profit for the stockholders, it's that individual that ends up on the front of Success Magazine, Right? Because that's what our, but that's what it's, that's what our world values. It's that that's it's that that's promoted. It's like, hey, this is what you want to achieve. But Jesus actually says the opposite. Interesting. He says the way up is down. What a contrast. What a what a conflict. Jesus says it's not the proud and the prominent that's applauded and rewarded. It's those who are humble in spirit. So the Beatitudes not only reveal what God values, but we discover they're, they're completely at odds with the ways of the world. And again, as we work our way through that, you're going you're gonna to see that play out. Here's the third thing you need to know about the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are not ethical demands, but they're values of the kingdom Jesus came to establish. It's not like we have the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, and we have the Eight Commandments in the New Testament being the book of Matthew. These are not commands. Jesus is not giving us eight commands. What he's really giving us is the values of the kingdom. And what it looks like for us to live as kingdom citizens. What it looks like for us to embrace the values of the kingdom in such a way that it shapes how we process life. You know, I grew up, obviously, in the Lemmings household. And I, I, I knew my grandfather. I didn't know my great-grandfather Obviously, I knew my father. And within our family, there's some values. Within the Lemmings family, I grew up with some values. Um, Values like um, work hard, have a strong work ethic. That that was, I was raised with that. I I was raised with with, uh, the whole concept of serving. What do we do? We serve. We, we just, we serve. We look for those opportunities. I, I grew up with a value of stewardship. Work hard. Manage money well. If my dad said this once, he said it a thousand times, son, it's not about what you make, it's about what you do with what you make. I didn't understand it when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. I thought some of that stuff was a little silly, to be honest. But what I've come to no, today, looking back, is there were values that were being lived out that have shaped who I am and how I live. So today, no one has to tell me, Pharaoh, you need to work hard. No one has to motivate me to 
have a strong work ethic, I naturally do that because it was the value that was established in me. No one has to encourage me or motivate me or pay me to serve. I, I just naturally serve because that's a value. It's a lemming's value that my grandfather passed to my father that was passed to me. Stewardship's not a challenge for me. Honoring God with the tithe is not a challenge for me. Managing money well is not a challenge for me. But it was a value that was established in my life that's now shaping my life. Are you following me? And if I had time to interact with you this morning, um, I know not everyone grew up in the same situation, but we could probably talk about some values that were said. So the values shape how I process life. So Jesus is coming, not giving commands, but he's saying, hey, here's some values. And as we embrace the kingdom values, then it shapes the actions of our lives. Are you, are you with me? That's why I think it's so much more important than we talk about the values than we do about the command. Are there some directives in Scripture? Well, sure, there's directives in Scripture. But this is what I know. If you embrace the values of the kingdom that Jesus talks about, then you'll not have to worry near as much about the commands, the directives. It'll just naturally happen. Why? Because you've embraced the values of the kingdom. So I'm grateful that Moses gave us the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. And, and I, again, I'm not making a lot of it. I think, I think every part of God's word is important. So don't go away and say, Pastor doesn't like the Ten Commandments. I really do. But I think there's a, there's, there's a significance in Jesus talking about values. Here's the values. Here's what it looks like to be a kid of the king. Here's what it looks like to represent the kingdom. So with that, quickly... Well, quickly, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when he, being Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How many of you want to be blessed in your life? I would assume everyone has their hand raised. I, I can't imagine anyone saying, you know, I just want to be cursed in my life all my life. That wouldn't make sense, would it? I mean, we, we all want to be, we all want to be blessed. In this passage, Jesus real, reveals for us the way to truly be blessed. He challenges the thought and the ways of our culture, and he calls us to live counterculture, for this is the way of the kingdom. So in the few minutes I have left, I, I want to take us deeper into the first two, first two Beatitudes. Next week, we're going to look at the next three. But let's look at these first two and talk about 
the value that Jesus is communicating. The first is found, looking back to verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, as, as we look at this, just the, the wording of it, like it seems to be in conflict, does it not? Blessed are the poor. Like That doesn't make sense, does it? Like, blessed are the poor. Jesus is not saying here, blessed are those who who uh, are, are broken destitute. He's not applauding that of, of you know, you being without food, without home, without clothes. That's not what he's, he's saying here. Actually, he's talking about blessed are those who are, get this, poor in spirit. Not poor in the pocketbook, but poor in here. What does that mean? It's interesting, if you dig deeper into this, it's interesting that in, in the Greek structure, there's two different words for poor. The, the first word for poor means someone who's making a living by the work of their hands. Uh, it's not that they don't have anything, they just don't have a lot and they're having to work for what they have. That's the first Greek word. The second Greek word for poor, it means to be um, destitute. It means to be totally without, having absolutely nothing. So the first Greek word means, uh, poor means that you don't have much. The second Greek word means you have nothing at all. Interesting, Jesus uses the second word here. I think that's significant as we look to this beatitude. Jesus is saying, blessed is the person who is objectively and completely poverty-stricken. Blessed is the person who is absolutely destitute and has come to the end of themselves. So this beatitude, I think, could read like this. Blessed is the person who has realized his own utter helplessness and has put their whole trust in God. And to be poor in spirit means that we realize this, that, that we're spiritually bankrupt and that we're lost without God. In Arkansas, we say it like this, you're up the creek without a paddle. You're in trouble. You, you have no answer with, with, without God. So true poverty of spirit comes when we realize that we're this, we're nothing without God. We're in trouble without God. There's a story of a pastor who was leaving church one Sunday, and one of his members came up to him and said, Oh, Pastor, you sure can preach. In fact, in my opinion, you're one of the greatest biblical expositors that's alive today. And like, this made the pastor's day. He got to thinking about great preachers of the world. And when he got into the car, he said to his wife, Miss Jones says, I'm one of the greatest expositors of the Word of God alive today. He said, I wonder how many great expositors there are today. And his wife replied, One less than you think. She was helping him with the poverty of spirit, right? And we have to realize that without God, we're lost and without hope. Listen, no matter what we have, no matter what we can do, folks, the bottom line is you can't save yourself. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how much money you have. You can't save yourself. It's only when we come to that realization that we can open our lives to God's saving grace and, and become a part of his kingdom. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 24 and 25, the Apostle Paul captures this truth when he said of his own life, what a wretch man that I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to the Lord, only through Christ Jesus. 
And that's, that's the only answer, folks. It's the only solution. It was for Paul, and it, and it is for you. See, Paul knew that the only, the only salvation for his life and for ours is the provision of Jesus. Only Jesus can bring salvation. But for every individual, you, you, you have to come. You have to come to your own poverty, your, your, your own inability, your understanding of your own inability to save yourself. Again, this is my opinion. You don't have to believe what I believe. But I happen to believe that this is one of the greatest issues in our community today. Now, no, generally speaking, what I'm about to say, generally speaking, is true. But we live in a middle to upper class um, income community. Because of the light, because of Charlotte, because of where we're located. Middle to upper income. And because of that, this is what it means. It means that Individuals have the job, they have the house, they have the growing 401k, life is good. Why do I need God? That's why Jesus spoke things like this. It's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not because money is bad, but because money becomes deceptive. Things become deceptive. The stuff becomes deceptive and you think, I can do this really well on my own. I think, friends, that's the greatest challenge in our community. You know, I can go to the country of Nicaragua and preach the gospel message, and hundreds of people come to faith in Christ. Why? Because they have nothing. They're looking for answers. They're, they're looking for hope. Today in our community, we live in a neighborhood in a group of folks who have become so blinded by prosperity that they can't see their need for God. They can't get to this poverty of spirit. Therefore, the kingdom of God never becomes theirs. Blinded. Because they think they can save themselves. They think they can do it on their own. And the reality, the reality is, is you can. Listen, the way to salvation and entry into Jesus' kingdom is not through effort, but it comes to those who realize simply this, their great need of God. Their great need of God. You know, in Luke 18, Jesus told a parable about two men. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And in this story that Jesus told, they go to the temple for the time of prayer. And it's interesting, the scripture says that the Pharisee prayed about himself. Check it out, you can read it in Luke 8, he prayed about himself. And his prayer went something like this, God, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I'm a really good man who's doing really good stuff. God, do you see how good I am? It was really a self-focused prayer full of pride. But the tax collector prayed a really different prayer with a really different posture. Scripture says that he would not even look up to heaven, but in anguish he prayed, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And at the end of the parable, Jesus said, it was not the Pharisee who went away justified, but it was the tax collector. Why? Because he understood his great need for God. He understood without God he was in trouble. But there was this, there was this poverty, this, this being poor of spirit. So the individual who's poor in spirit has realized this, that things mean nothing and God means everything. Things mean nothing. Listen, there's nothing wrong with things. Use the things. 
Celebrate the things, share the things, bless others with the things. But don't make life about the things. Because hear, hear me, the things can't save you. Only God can save you. Now that's why Jesus, I believe, gives this beatitude first. Because it's that that brings us into relationship with God. When you come to the place where you're poor in spirit and you realize that without God you're in trouble. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs. Is the kingdom of God. The second beatitude in Matthew chapter 5 verse 4. Says blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Again Jesus puts two words together here. That, that seem to conflict. It's like this is a, um, an oxymoron. Like these two things don't go together. Like. Blessing and mourning. Like that, that's not. It doesn't seem to work does it? Like, if you lose a loved one, you are wrecked by emotion, right? You, you don't count that a place of blessing. You count that a place of sorrow. Why? Because, because of the grief in your heart. Yet Jesus brings this together. He says, blessed are those who mourn. So what was Jesus trying to communicate? I believe that this, this beatitude isn't about comforting those who feel sad. Yes, Jesus, he, Jesus does that, but he's talking here about those who Mourn over their sin and the sins of the world. What's the mourning about? It's about the sin in our lives. You know, we live in a world today that celebrates sin, that tries to make sin look good and comes up with new ways to sin every day. But Jesus says the blessed people are those who hate sin, who, who feel sick when they see sin in their lives. Listen, if you see ugliness in your life, and you're glad about it, then you're not living out this kingdom value. You're stuck. You're stuck in your sin. And the problem with unconfessed sin is that it becomes an obstacle in our relationship with God. It it becomes a hindrance in our relationship with God. Matter of fact, in Psalm uh, Psalm 66, verse 18, David wrote these words. He said, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have heard me. If I had given place for it, if I held on to that. He said, there, there would have been this breakdown in my, in my relationship with God. And we all sin, right? Are you with me? We all sin. This is not about whether we sin or not. It's about our attitude in response to the sin. This is what I know. If you're human and breathing, you sin. I went to Bible college with a with a gentleman who's now a pastor, and he tried to convince me that he never sinned, and I, I, I didn't buy it. I didn't buy it from him, and I don't buy it from you. You got a problem, and I have a problem, and it's this. It's, it's the depravity. It's the struggle of us living out the faith. So, so this, this beatitude is not about whether we sin or not. It's about our attitude and response towards sin. The kingdom people are broken over sin. They mourn for their sin and the sin of the world. They, they see the consequence of sin and it motivates them to confront the sin and to receive then God's grace, His forgiveness and transformation. Therefore, they are comforted. Why? Because then we're brought back to right relationship with God. The mourning over our sin is good and right because it does three things. And they're there and you know, the first is this. When we mourn over our sins, we repent. We repent. Now, this word repent means more than just to confess the wrong. 
It means, it means more than just saying, I, I did wrong. That's part of the process, but the word repent literally means this. It means to change directions. If you can think of it like this, it means to make a U-turn. When we mourn over our sin, when we're wrecked by our sin, when we hate the sin in our lives, it brings us then to authentic, true repentance. It's interesting, in in 2 Corinthians Paul wrote these words. He's, he's, he's talking about his prior letter. In his prior letter, what we know as 1 Corinthians, he brought some pretty strong words of correction because of sin in the church. And then in his second letter, he says, you know, I'm glad that I made you sorrow. I'm glad that I made you mourn over your sin. And then he goes on to talk about, notice how verse 10 reads, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance. That leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So as, as we mourn over our sin, it moves us to this place of repentance. And in that we, we discover God's mercy. I think secondly, when we mourn, we confront the deeper heart issue. We, we move beyond the wrong, the issue, the sin to the deeper heart issue. Rather than just confronting the fruit, we go to the root, the root of the problem. In Matthew fifteen eighteen, Jesus said these words, but the things that come out of the mouth come from where? So where's the problem? It's not the mouth, is it? Where's the problem? The problem's much deeper. It's in the heart. So these things come out of the Not out of the mouth, but they come from the heart. And it's these that make a man unclean. When we mourn over our sin, when we're wrecked by our sin, the sins of our culture, the sins of our world, it really, it really brings us to confront like the deeper heart issue. To confront it with that of God's mercy. And then as we mourn, here's the third thing. That should naturally happen out of our mourning over our sin as we seek the help of the Holy Spirit for change. You know, one of the key roles of the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, is to convict us and guide us into truth. Jesus makes that very clear in John 14 and John 16. See, we're not on our own attempting to bring change in our lives. We have help. It's the Holy Spirit that assists us as living as kingdom citizens. So as we mourn over our sin, it's, it's then that the Holy Spirit can work to bring transformation in our lives. So blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So, so how do we discover life? How do we discover this blessing that Jesus speaks of? I, I think the first two insights that Jesus gives us are these. We're fully dependent on God. And the second is to be wrecked over your sin, to be broken over your sin. That brings you humble before God that you might find his mercy, the God who's rich in mercy. So as we look at the Beatitudes, it's it's like a radical, it's a radical transfer. It's a radical, radically different way of doing life. 
that we're called to as followers of Jesus Christ, that we would embrace God's values that then would shape our actions and our behavior. Now, this is what I would challenge you to, not only this week, but I think this is a good habit. It's a habit that I've built into my life every day. Happened this morning. It'll happen tomorrow morning. As I begin my day every day, just reminding God of, of his greatness and my great need. Just to stay in that mentality of, God, without you, I'm in trouble. Without you, I have no hope. Without you, I, I'm, I'm not able. Listen, if I, if I didn't believe God was going to bring help, I wouldn't be standing here today in front of you. Because I'm not that good and I'm not that smart. I understand that. My confidence is not in myself. My confidence, my confidence is in the God who lies, who lives within me. And what we begin every day, God, help me. I, I, I need you. I live in that place of being desperate for God. And the second, to begin every day with repentance. Listen, this is what happens. As you're doing life in the world, you get dirty. That's why you take a shower, right? You get dirty. I cut the grass yesterday and I got dirty. And my wife said, you're taking a shower before you go to bed. You're going to deal with that dirt. Listen, in the same way, as we do life, we get dirty. What do we need? We, we need to get, we need to deal with the heart issues. So daily we're declaring our need of God. And daily, we're getting broke, allowing our hearts to be broke over the sin, the stuff in our lives that brings us to right repentance, that brings us to that place of right relationship. That we might receive the mercy of God, the goodness of God. And in that, we're blessed. We're blessed. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you this morning for the guidance of your word and the truth of your word. Lord, I, what I know about myself and what I think is true of all of my friends here today is, wow, God, we need you. Every minute of every day. So just as we close this, this morning, we just profess that. Matter of fact, for those here, for those online watching on it, I would just encourage you right now where you're at, would you just say this? You don't have to say it. You don't have to yell it out, but just say it loud enough that you can hear it and your neighbor can hear it. Would you just say this with me? God, I need you. Let's say it again. God, I need you. Oh God, those are not just words to make us feel good or our neighbor feel good. It is the reality, God. We need you. To be the husbands you've called us to be, to be the wives you've called us to be, to be the parents you've called us to be, to be your representatives here in this community. God, we need you. And secondly, Lord, we just ask that for the, that the things that wreck you, 
and wreck your heart. God, may they wreck our hearts. That we might be those who live in your mercy and live out your mercy, blessed in our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us not just hear these words, but Lord, may your values become our values. And as your values become our values, then the behavior and the actions that flow out of that will be that that position us to enjoy your blessing. But I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stay? For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.